Tonight, our message is entitled, Blessed are the Persecuted. And our passage is actually going to be an extended passage from Acts chapter 6 all the way through the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And we're going to read just a few portions of it here. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. I just want to stop right there. For those of you who weren't with us last week, last week we studied the beginning part of, of Acts, and we noted that when there was pain and a um, conflict between the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, and the Hebrew-speaking Jews that were from the area of Judea, uh, because the widows of the Greek-speaking Jews were overlooked, the apostles then um, empowered the disciples to select seven men and gave them full authority. Stephen was one of those seven. They selected seven Greek Jews, Hellenistic Jews, to take care of that issue, to ensure that people were treated fairly. And Stephen wasn't just waiting tables. Stephen is now going to be a man full of God's grace and power, performing great wonders and signs among the people. So a Greek-speaking Jew, a Hellenistic Jew not from that locale, is the story that we're reading about him, okay? So opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, who were Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. Uh, this is a community of those Hellenistic Jews, and they're starting to have some opposition and conflict because diversity is messy. Um, and they began to argue with Stephen. Now, um, you can imagine at this point, if you see somebody from within your own community starting to believe something that you don't think is with is uh, kosher, for lack of a better term, right? You're going to have that conflict and argument, and that's what starts to happen. Um, so as they're doing this, though, because Stephen's full of power and grace, it says that they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit. The Spirit gave him as he spoke. So they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, if you have people going and saying that of a fellow Jew, a fellow Greek-speaking Jew, then, of course, you're immediately um, causing that problem of who is who is righteous, whose doctrine is right, whose theology is right in this mix. And so they start to secretly say that these two, these things that people really care about, Moses and God, they're going to say he's, he's blaspheming against them. So they stir up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seize Stephen and they bring him before the Sanhedrin, that ruling authority of that day um, in Jerusalem. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, meaning the house of God, the temple of God, or against the Torah, the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So they start just all of those uh, big flash words, right? Temple, Torah, Moses, God, he's speaking against all of that and speaking and saying that this guy, Jesus, is going to tear this down. So you can immediately hear the conflict. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Um, it's shining. It's, it should hearken to you a little bit like the description of Moses. Uh, then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And now the next whole section, the whole chapter 7, Stephen is going to do what I do in, uh, in, in uh, 20 weeks, 5 months. He is going to do in one chapter. He's going to try to take you from garden to garden a little bit, right? So he's going to say, and in that time, he's going to talk about Abraham. He's going to talk about Moses. He's going to talk about God. He's going to talk about the Torah. He's going to talk about temple, Israel, the prophets. And he's going to bring all of that story into place. So everything that he's being accused of, right? 
You don't care about God. You don't care about the house of God. You don't care about the Torah. You don't care about the prophets, all that. Moses, he's like, just goes through. And Moses did this and Moses did that. So you have now a person who maybe was being ostracized from the outside of the community, not only because of their faith in Jesus, but also because maybe they're that one of those Hellenistic Jews, right? And it's, again, all the conflict and the, the chaos of diversity. And so they have this guy. He's like, I know what your accusation is. I'll make sure to just touch all those points for you guys. And so he grabs them all. I care about all these things. We are together. But then at the end of that long speech in seven, he ends with this. You stiff-necked people. This is where the trouble is going to start. Your hearts and ears are uncircumcised. This is very prophetic language, right? That, that comes out of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. Like you aren't dedicated to God. Your hearts and your ears are uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. This is, this is, these are fighting words right here, right? Um, Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was given through the angels, but you've not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. To be expected, yes. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at him at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which is a euphemism for, for passing away. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So all of that community that they had had from the beginning of Acts 2 and on, all of the, the first followers of the way, all of how they were daily at the temple courts praying, all of that, this now starts to shift. Now there's, they're being persecuted. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. And going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. And that's the end of our reading. They will persecute you, Jesus had told us. In the days when we followed Jesus throughout the land of Galilee, when we sat and we listened to his teaching in all those pastoral settings, as we watched him heal the blind and the lame, as we watched him raise the widow named son back to life, as we watched Jesus do all of that, as we watched him have conversations with the powers and the structures of existence in his day in Jerusalem, he said, by the way, they're going to persecute you too. He told us this. You will be handed over to be persecuted, he said, and you will be put to death and you will be hated by all the nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from their faith and will betray and hate each other. You're going to be hated by everyone because of me, he said. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. It's good news, by the way. Jesus says it's okay to run. Get out of town. 
Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. If you belong to the world, Jesus says, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant's not greater than his master. So if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. All of us, all of us followers of the way, all of us people who've been following Jesus, he promised this was going to happen. None of this is surprising. It might be shocking. It might not be comfortable. It might be very deeply upsetting, but he actually predicted, he promised the persecution would come. He said, you're not greater than me. If they're going to do it to me, they'll do it to you. But Jesus not only promised persecution, he also taught us how to respond to it. And all of this is deeply important because all of those early followers of the way, they heard him teach this. And then they also saw him live it. He said up in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which by the way is nowhere in your Hebrew scriptures. It was just said by one of the sects of, of uh, of, the, of Judaism in Jesus' time, one of, this, one of these people that were sort of trying to figure out how do we respond to this Roman rule. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children in your Father in heaven. Apparently, Stephen listened. Because he does exactly that as he is being stoned. As he's being dragged out of the town, what you would do in a stoning is you would, you would sit there and you would say, okay, this person deserves to be stoned. There's typically like a trial and people who would say that this person is guilty would come forward and then you'd have to have two or more witnesses and then some ruling and an agreement that this person indeed is guilty of this. And then they would drive the person out of town and they would try to find a, a cliff or some area to push the person off. Uh, once they push that person off the cliff, then everyone who thinks that person's guilty would pick up a stone and continue to throw it or drop it on the person. Now, if the person survived, then they were innocent and they could get back up and walk back into town, which the Apostle Paul does occasionally in our New Testament. He's like, oh, they're really interested. Let me go back into town. And after he survives a stoning, he must have been a pretty intense guy. Um, but in this case, Stephen, of course, doesn't survive. And there must be enough people that have, what he has said has, has stirred them up to the point where they are so deeply worried and concerned in spite of what Rabbi Gamliel had taught about like, listen, if it's not from God, it'll die out. And if it's from God, you can't do anything to stop it. And Saul is a student of Rabbi Gamliel says he sits at the feet, but he doesn't like that ruling of that rabbi. And instead, he wants to persecute the followers of the way. And they, they take Stephen out. And, and as he's there and he's being beaten down with these stones, he has a vision of God. And then he prays, you know, Father, like, forgive them. Right? They don't know what they're doing. He learned this from his rabbi, from Rabbi Jesus. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Jesus didn't just promise the persecution would come. He also lived out how to respond to it. This is a very hard teaching, isn't it? It's a very difficult teaching. Today, as we look at our world, 
The church is being persecuted at a greater level than it has ever really been in, in any sense of modern history. 2016 was the largest number of persecutions of Christians across the world. For all intents and purposes, there is no more a Christian presence in Iraq, and there has been one for 2,000 years, or Syria, and there has been one for 2,000 years, or, or Jordan, in Egypt, and Israel, and Palestine, and Jordan, <clears throat> where there were Christians once 14%, now there's 4%. In Iran, Iraq, and Turkey, they're almost nearly all but gone. Where, where people had 1.4 million Christians in a place, there's now, in, in Iraq, now there's about 200,000 left. And, and those that are there are there because they're stuck. They, they are stuck. They're the poorest of the poor. In Lebanon, which is the only country in the region where Christians still hold any sort of significant power or place, their numbers have shrunk from 78% to 34% of the population. The church is being persecuted today. The persecution continues today in in many countries, not just in the Middle East, on the continent of Africa, in portions of of Asia, in Russia. Uh, There are many places around the world where the brothers and sisters, for for our brothers and sisters who read this passage with Stephen, this is not an academic exercise. They don't have to imagine what persecution looks like. They know what it looks like. This is a church in Syria. A local Christian prays in the ruins of a church destroyed by ISIS. And these scenes in Mosul, in Syria, in portions, different countries in Africa, it's happening around the world. Our brothers and sisters are suffering and they are being persecuted. And we often wonder today, I think in this place in America, when we read passages like this where truly we are not persecuted, Things might be rough. Somebody might not want you to talk about your faith at work. Um, you might have an uncomfortable dinner conversation or lunch conversation. You might feel deeply lonely. You might feel underrepresented in our national conversation. But let's be honest. This is not persecution. Not, it's not. All right, is anyone being dragged out of their workplace on a on a Tuesday because they said Merry Christmas in the month of December, and then they're stoned. No. You safely came to church today. This is a privilege, and it's not one that is common for all of our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And isn't it true that we do believe that when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer? So when we walk around and we're acting as though that the church today doesn't experience this level of persecution, it it shows a a deep level of our our privilege of the freedom of religion that we have here in our great country. In Egypt, just these last few months, the Coptic Christians in Egypt are dwindling by numbers. numbers. They've experienced a a number of really painful attacks. Um, Just in May, uh, 29 Christians on a church bus to a popular monastery in the Sinai were just slaughtered and killed. By ISIS, um, a church bombing killed dozens, um, upwards of 50 people at Palm Sunday um, in Egypt. And as each one of these events happens, I start to hear the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, right? You who are poor, meek, grief-stricken, peacemaking, pure in heart, hungry, righteous, and persecuted and insulted, And in the midst of this persecution, the Coptic Christians in Egypt are following still the way. They are still following the words of Jesus. If you can believe this, 
that now as a result of their response to these horrific terrorist attacks, where Coptic Christians had, had a significant presence in the land of Egypt and under the, this most recent regime, and then under these attacks from ISIS and others, it's just diminished over and over and over again. And these Christian brothers and sisters of ours are huddled there on Sunday mornings, and they've experienced deep pain. And in the midst of that, their response has been forgiveness. It's like they read the gospel and decided to do what Jesus said to do. And they've been praying for forgiveness. So I'd like to show you a clip of an interview with the woman whose husband, on Palm Sunday, he was doing security. And he saw the suicide bomber coming towards him, and he thought there was something quite a little bit off, and he directed that person to go through the uh, metal detector, and the suicide bomber detonated that bomb right next to then that security guard as they were directing through. So her husband was one of the first initial casualties. She's being interviewed on the most well-known national uh, news program in Egypt by their top lead anchor. And this is what... وراح بطلب من ربنا ان يعني يسامحهم ويحاولوا يفكروا شويه يفكروا يفكروا صدقيني لان هم لو فكروا احنا ما بنعملهمش اي حاجه صدقيني ما بنعملهمش حاجه لهم فكروا تاني فكروا ان انتوا بتعملوه ده صح ولا غلط وربنا يسامحكم واحنا مسامحينكم بامانه بقولها مسامحكم وصدقيني لان انتوا حطيتوه لي ابو ولادي في مكان ما كنتش اتمنى العمر كله صدقيني بامانه يعني انا عمري انا بفتخر بيه وبتمنى اكون انا جنبه صدقيني يا بنتي واشكرك يا حبيبتي اقباط مصر مصنوعين من فولاذ أقباط مصر مئات السنين بيتحملوا كوارث ومصايب كتيرة القبط المصري يعشق تراب بلده القبط المصري يتحمل كل شيء عشان وطنه وإيه كمية التسامح اللي عندكوا دي لو أعدائكوا يعرفوا قد انتوا متسامحين بجد ما كانش حد يصدق ده انا لو ابويا والله ما اقول كده ابدا الناس دي عندها كميه تسامح عن حق عن عقيده دول بني ادمين والله مصنوعين من ماده ثانيه الله يرحمه عم نسيم بطل وشهيد ومثل اعلى للي قاعد كل واحد في البلد دي يقول لك هي البلد دي ايه والبلد دي ماشيه ازاي؟ البلد دي ماشيه كده. البلد دي ماشيه بالصبر بالجلد بالتحمل بالست العظيمه دي بالعيال اللي خلف ما ماتش ضرباهم وعمل رجاله. The Christian witness that from the bishops down throughout the entire country the moment each of these bombings has happened they have stood there and said, forgive. We forgive. And as a result, 
Their Muslim brothers and sisters in Egypt have started creating safety circles around the churches of the Coptic Christians to ensure that the Christians can, can worship safely. This type of upside-down kingdom and teaching of Jesus, it shifts everything. It doesn't beget more violence. It, it brings about an astonishment at the way of Jesus. When Jesus goes to the Sermon on the Mount, he says very clearly, Blessed are you poor, grief-stricken, meek, hungry, thirsty and for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking, persecuted, falsely accused, insulted. Blessed are you. Blessed. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Blessed are you when you are falsely accused. Blessed are you when you are insulted. Blessed are you when you are grieving and mourning. Why? Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets were before you. And then the next line he says is he says to those people who are gathered around, because you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the city on the hill. Because when you are persecuted and when you are harmed and when you are grieving, when you then apply the way of Jesus, when you live that out and you say, I will pray for my enemy. I will express the love of Jesus. I will reach deep down by the power of the Holy Spirit and I will forgive. When I am being stoned here, Stephen, on his knees, prays, Father, forgive because that's how his rabbi prayed. That's how his Messiah prays. That's how the Son of God prays. And everyone watched Jesus did that, do that. And they said, ah, that's what it looks like to be persecuted and to be faithful and to love our enemies. And when we experience those events, we often feel, first of all, none of those events sound like fun. Right? I don't want Jesus to point at me and say, hey, you, yeah, the persecuted, grief-stricken one that's totally suffering. Way to go. Good for you. Aren't, I'm so glad I'm suffering. That's not an easy message. And in our society and in our theology and our church, when we, hear the, when we experience those things, when we experience that suffering, when we experience those insults, that persecution, we believe, when we experience loss and grief, we believe so quickly that those are the things that disqualify us from the kingdom of God. Well, I've suffered this, or I've gone through this divorce, and I am mourning that, so therefore I'm disqualified from the kingdom of God. I can't do these good things for Jesus. I have had this tremendous loss in my life. God must not love me. I must have done something wrong because I've been dealing with all of those events that we have in our life. Oh my goodness, what did the Christians at that one church do in Egypt? They must have done something to cause and bring such terror and such evil upon themselves. That's how we, we like to figure out a, a formula to guarantee and to protect ourselves from future suffering. And we like to figure out a formula that explains away the suffering of somebody else. They must have done something. Instead, Jesus takes all of those disqualifying events and he says, uh-huh, you think those things disqualify you, but they actually qualify you to be then salt and light and the city on the hill. So let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's what's happening with our Coptic brothers and sisters in Egypt, isn't it? 
on national television. If only your enemy knew the love and the forgiveness you could have for them. And we've seen moments like that, where the way of Jesus has won and made big strides and big shifts and big changes, even in our own nation. And it is a hard way, but it is the only way that I see forward that works. If those first followers of Jesus had stood up and started to instead fight and bring violence and start to just instead kill and hurt and maim the people that had killed and hurt and maimed Stephen. The only thing that ends up stopping that persecution is a vision experience that Saul has on the road. Jesus steps in. Why do you persecute me? He asks Saul. This is complicated. It is hard. It is not easy. And I am struggling with it all the time. This week I was uh, FaceTime with Kevin. I was talking with him about a whole bunch of things that are really upsetting to me right now. Just my general angst about the world at large. And, um, and he asked me, we were talking about this passage, and he said, so Danielle, who is Saul in your life? Who's standing there right now? And looking over approvingly on tragedy or a loss of life. Who is the Saul in your life? And I was like, okay, I won't tell you who I named. There's no one in this room. Um, And he said, so are you willing to pray for him or her? Right? Okay. So let's pray. This prayer is um, a responsive prayer. So I'll say, Lord, in your mercy, and you'll respond with, hear our prayer. For those who have seen their lives torn apart by violence of all kinds, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For the families, friends, and communities of loved ones lost, both close and far. For all who grieve the loss of life tragically ended, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For people of the way who are willing to step out and lead in times of trouble, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For those who watch from a distance, refusing to get involved or easily passing judgment, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For those in positions of power and influence who work for justice and peace, reconciliation and hope, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For those who hold authority but abuse that power towards unjust ends, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For the Saul's who stand by and watch violence approvingly, and for the Stevens who pray for forgiveness, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For us, Lord, all of the followers of your way, of every race, party, nationality, ethnicity, gender, that we may see your kingdom of love, peace, reconciliation, rescue, forgiveness, hope, justice, and resurrection. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And as we take on the yoke of the kingdom of Jesus, let's pray the prayer he taught us together. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining us. You've seen that I've offered no easy solutions or quick three steps to forgiving an enemy. I've just made it really complicated for all of us. Yeah, Jesus did. We have five minutes for questions or responses or wrestlings or um, any of that is welcome. I just want to know it's, it's totally fine to not be there. It's completely fine to not yet be at the place where we want to try to forgive. I'm not there. <laughs> yeah. So if we're supposed to give an enemy and expect to be prosecuted, does that mean we shouldn't fight against it? Or Okay. If we're supposed to get, forgive our enemy and expect to, that persecution, does that mean we shouldn't fight against it? No, no. Jesus says you can run. Run, Bambi. Run. Get out. Get out of town. We don't have to keep running into the path of the people persecuting us. Right? This is not, um, Jesus doesn't teach that type of uh, martyrdom of faith. He's just saying when it comes. And it might not come to you personally, but it can come to a brother and sister. And because we are all part of the body of Christ, yeah, it will come. Yeah. Yes? Is it also being called to avoid? Called to what? I don't know. That's a good question. Is, is it supposed to be called to avoid the persecution? I don't know if sometimes we can, right? I don't think Stephen got to avoid it. Well, what I, I mean, and this is what I've been wrestling with. I talked a couple of or yesterday we talked about this. And, you know, it, it, it always pains me a little bit to watch this stuff because it does hurt me to, to see that going through. Then I, I think that the devil has us right where us right where he needs us, mm. which is in places that our light shines best inside this room, and it gets a lot duller outside as we avoid mm. uh, spiritual persecution. Yeah. So I think of the Coptic Christians, right? They were just going to church on Palm Sunday, and then a bomb goes off, and their pews are bloodied, and 50 people are lost, and then there's another attack and another attack. So they're not running to the persecution. They're not trying to avoid it. They're just trying to go to church. And, and I, think, I think I'm just thinking of those specific types of situations where you're, you're just trying to go to church. And it comes and takes you out. What do you do when that happens? Yeah. Or you're just trying to drive to the store. Yeah. Thanks for wrestling with the stuff. Yes. Great. So the question is, how do we manage when we see a massive loss of life of maybe a group of people who aren't Christian, right? Do we still have that same level of compassion and concern for the persecution that they are encountering and experiencing, even if they don't speak French 
right? So like, for example, after a, a terror attack in France, we'll all f- fly the French flag, but then the same week there can be a massive lof- loss of life in Mosul in Iraq, and we don't see the hashtag, you know, for Mosul. Um, that's a challenge, right? Uh, is that because they, we perceive the life of this ethnicity, this race, this color, this faith uh, more valuable than the life of another? I don't know if I have tips for those conversations, except for I, I would say that we together as the church here at Spark can lead into the, the racial reconciliation and justice on those issues where we stand up and we say, I stand with my brother and sister, my Muslim brother and sister, my uh, who, whoever else we might want to stand with in whatever area. And part of that is to pay attention to the, to the suffering that we see in the world. Um, and I would note that if you're having that conversation with a, another Christian, uh, Christians actually, and I know this sounds crazy, uh, but statistically, this was the first year where there's more Christian persecution on the face of the earth than, than any other people group. Now, it's not a victim off. We're not having a contest. Any loss of life, then the blood cries out from the ground. But I also haven't heard the Christian church here in the United States crying out for brothers and sisters all around the world either. So I, I think part of the problem that we have is we're just so comfortable in our bubble that, and we don't see that loss of life of, of any here locally in that same way. Um, so, so it's probably a problem we have. It's a large problem, and then we have problems with our blinders, right? Both. Right. Not as much just an individual terrorist attack. Or like obviously the Yazidis are the largest right. in Syria. Uh, so that's kind of a, I mean, not that doesn't happen elsewhere with other Sure. But your point is good, John. So that the aspect of this is being genocidally carried out towards Christian groups, um, particularly in the Middle East and on, I believe also on the continent of Africa right now. There's some genocidal uh, removal of, of long-standing Christian communities. Uh, Two years ago, John Kerry actually supported and had passed within Congress and within um, the United Nations was something that I had advocated for, that, that it is now being called genocide in the Middle East for the Christians. That, it, that that's the word, and you know that there's a lot of rules as to when you can use that word, and that word has actually been applied to the life, uh, to the experiences that are happening for Christians in the Middle East right now. And, and if that's new to you, then that's, to your point, part of our problem. Because we're not hearing that there's mass genocide of our brothers and sisters in a lot of parts of the world. And, and by brothers and sisters, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, I use that term not just for people within the body of Christ, but I use that term for the humanity of all. Right? Jesus, we need you. And I, my prayer is that we would be leaning in to the power of your spirit, the love that you have for all, for, for enemy, for friend, for the fact that you don't even qualify people as such, but just as children of God. And Jesus says, as your children on this earth, we are often really ill-behaved. And we pray right now for everyone suffering, whether they are the persecuted one or the one that is persecuting, who also is suffering. Jesus, we pray that your deep, unconditional love would come to be at home in our hearts and in the hearts of all. Um, 
that we would start to experience some hope and some resurrection and that we would be those foolish, those faithful fools that believe that your kingdom can come here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, we need you. Um, Help us to listen to your heartbeat in this world. Amen.